Well, Jackie, you're yeah. going to read uh, God's word for us now from the book of Romans. I am. Yep, Colin. Um, I'd love to do that. So All right. will you turn with me to Romans um, chapter 2? And we're looking at verses 1 through to 16 as our first reading. Um, oh, there are two readings this morning. So, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is, in, is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And then we move on to chapter 3 and we're starting at verse 19 and we're going through to 24. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and all fall short and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the, redemp through the redemption that came 
by Christ Jesus. Okay, thank you, Jackie, and congratulations, Kate. Uh, that's great news. Uh, and hi, everyone. Uh, great that you can uh, tune in uh, with us this morning. During the week, you might have seen I sent out a survey uh, to our church family via Facebook, uh, and I put up a, a range of um, pairs of um, like hypocritical to genuine, so that like scale, and I, I got, got people to indicate where on the scale the average Aussie uh, would put the church. Um, and so you've got the scale of hypocritical to genuine, uh, arrogant to humble, uh, judgmental to accepting, and condescending to empathetic. I wonder where you would uh, you know, think the average Aussie would put the church, or maybe even where, where you would put the church. Uh, but here is the kind of answers uh, that we came up with. So I, I basically just, uh, you know, magnified the words according to uh, the survey. Uh, and so you can see that the feeling out there is that the church um, is hypocritical, arrogant, judgmental, and condescending, um, rather than all those other good characteristics, genuine, humble, accepting, and empathetic. I then asked, where on the scale would you put the lakes? Uh, and you've got to remember, these were lakes people uh, filling out the survey, but the, the answers were a lot more encouraging, I've got to say. Um, so on the whole, people's experience of our church, people who come along, find it genuine, humble, accepting, and empathetic. But there were some kind of outliers. You know, there were some people who felt, you know, there was some hypocrisy going on or arrogance, judgmentalism, uh, that some people in our church are condescending. Uh, and I'd expect that because we are a community of sinners who are being transformed. You know, we are sitting ourselves under God's word, but there's still a long way to go. Uh, there's still so much work in our hearts that God has yet to do. Uh, and this morning we'll be part of that. This morning God will be driving our hearts from that judgmentalism uh, towards that acceptance and compassion and empathy. You see, in, in Romans chapter 2, Paul explicitly address, addresses people who are judgmental, condescending, unforgiving, not compassionate. If you were with us last week, Paul delivered some really bad news for the human race. Uh, and that is there's a problem. God is angry with us. God is angry with us because, well, firstly, we've suppressed the truth about God. The truth about God is clear, but we suppress that truth. We exchange the truth for lies, and we do and approve things that we know, we kind of instinctively know, deserve death. Now, Paul was aware that some people would have been hearing everything he said in chapter 1, uh, and instead of feeling cut to the heart and convicted, they would have actually been cheering him on. Yes, go, Paul, preach it. You know, preach against those godless people. Expose sexual immorality. Um, some people would have been cheering Paul on because they somehow felt that they were exempt, that they were kind of morally superior to what Paul had to say last week. 
So now Paul turns his attention to them, to the, to the judgmental, the religious kind of person. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Uh, really a helpful rule of thumb, right? So you know when you point the finger at someone in blaming someone else? Uh, if you just notice, you've got three fingers pointing back at yourself every time you do that. And Jesus says that same sort of thing, doesn't he? That uh, we're so quick at seeing a little speck in our brother's eye or our sister's eye without realising that there's a log or a plank in our own eye. And he says, look, you know, before you pick the speck out of your brother's eye, remove the plank or the log from your own eye. Now, we're all tempted to do this. This is what gossip is about. Uh, and our world is full of gossip. Gossip is about noticing the faults of others, pointing them out, and we kind, it kind of makes ourselves feel better about ourselves uh, in, in this bizarre way when we notice the faults of others. It makes us kind of feel a little bit better. Uh, and so we become critical, quick to blame others, quick to see the mistakes in others, quick to find fault in others. Uh, and the other thing we do is we, um, we kind of put a little bit of a spin on the faults in our own lives. You know, so we say, you're a liar. I just stretch the truth. Uh, you're cheating but I was just bending the rules. Uh, you're a bully, but I'm standing up for my own rights. You're a whinger, but I genuinely have something to complain about. Uh, and I just want you to imagine for a moment that God recorded every occasion when you made a moral judgment about someone else. Uh, and so, you know, you might say, she's a gossip. Click. And that's recorded. Uh, or that's the most stupid thing I have ever heard. Click. The recorded. Uh, I'd never do anything like that. He got exactly what he deserved. Uh, and even those moral judgments that we never utter, but those we are kind of thinking internally, they also are recorded by God. Uh, and Every year, let's be honest, every single one of us makes thousands, probably even tens of thousands of those little mini moral judgments. Um, and imagine all of that was recorded and then on the day of judgment you stood before God and you might be thinking, well, compared to other people, I, I really don't think God's got much on me. Uh, and then he plays you know, he presses the play button and all of that stuff that's been recorded, all those moral judgments come flooding back. It would be hours of recorded material. And when it's over, God says, okay, I will judge you by the same standards you use to judge others. No one would survive that judgment. And what Paul here is doing, he, he's particularly focused on that tendency that religious people have 
to somehow think that they're better than everyone else. Somehow the world is godless, but somehow I've risen above it. And so Paul has a couple of reality checks in this passage. The first one is that God's judgment is impartial. There are no exemptions. Look at verse 6. So this is chapter 2, verse 6 of Romans. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give them eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. And a couple verses down, for God does not show favoritism. Now this is called retributive justice. God will give to each person according to what they've done. God will give to each person exactly what they deserve. And there is something deep inside each one of us that longs for this genuine justice, for real justice, not just some scam, not just a pretend justice, but real justice. Because the opposite is favoritism. The opposite is unfair judgment. The opposite is even corruption. So I want to give you a few scenarios. So the first scenario is your kids in one of the local soccer teams. Uh, and your son is going up against another boy for a place you know, on the, the, the top team. And your boy is clearly better than the other boy. Uh, you know, so, so often that's the case, isn't it? So your boy is clearly better, but the other boy is the coach's son. And so he gets picked for the team and not you. And you and your boy at this point, you feel ripped off. You feel like there's been some sort of failure of justice in the system. Or here's another scenario. You apply for a job uh, and there's two people going for the job. You are clearly the better candidate, right? You know, obviously. Um, more experience, you've got a better mark in the HSC. Uh, you, just, you just conduct yourself better in the interview. But the other guy gets the job. Why? Because his dad plays golf with the boss. Uh, and so there's this kind of unfair, preferential treatment that he gets. Or what about in a courtroom where the judge, right, two Two people come up on exactly the same sentence before the judge. One is condemned. So one gets exactly what they deserve. The other is let off. And you ask, why? What was going on there? Why does one person get condemned, the other let off for exactly the same crime? And then you find out later that one of the criminals slipped the judge some cash. He bribed him and... On that basis, he got off. And you think, man, that's just a failure of justice. That's corruption. See, we long for justice. It hurts us. It grieves us when injustice and corruption and bribery is allowed to run rampant. Uh, have you ever noticed how many of the shows we watch on telly are about justice? Uh, as I think about the sort of shows I, I watch, they're almost all have that theme of justice, you know, like detective stuff, you know, trying to expose the truth or police dramas um, or even the vigilante, you know, who 
the justice system has failed, so they're going to take justice in their own hands. Superheroes. Notice they're called the Justice League. Uh, and again, there's that theme that sometimes the police and the government, sometimes they can't bring true justice, or sometimes even they are corrupt. And so you need the Justice League to step in to kind of overthrow the evil and bring true justice. Something grieves us about injustice and corruption and favoritism and prejudice. And there is something deep within us that longs for real, genuine justice. And God will deliver. So God says, it says here in Romans chapter 2, God will repay each person according to what they've done. God doesn't show favoritism. God doesn't show preferential treatment. And at this point, Paul anticipates that there might be another objection. There might be another group who kind of feel like they're exempt. And that is the Jews themselves. So Paul himself was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. And Paul is aware enough of his own countrymen to know that they would kind of say, yes, God is impartial, but we're kind of in a different category. And those things kind of don't apply to us because we're God's special people. We're set apart. We've been circumcised. We have the law. We love the law. We keep the law. And Paul kind of says, yes, there is a privilege in being Jewish. Uh, there are privileges, but privilege doesn't mean exemption or excuse. Yes, privilege but no exemptions. So, and what Paul does is he, he, he picks up on a couple of things, the law and circumcision. So take the law. 1,500 years before Jesus, Moses climbs up Mount Sinai. He receives the Ten Commandments and a whole lot of other laws from God. And now the Jewish people, um, out of all the nations in the world, the Jewish people have the very words of God the very commands of God. Uh, and they prided themselves on being the ones that were chosen, set apart to have the laws of God. But have a look at chapter 2, verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will also be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So the question is not whether, it's not whether or not you possess the law, whether you have it written down to read. The question is whether you obey the law. So Paul puts forward two people. One is a Jewish person, the other is a Gentile. Uh, and Gentiles were just non-Jewish, right? So a Jewish person and a non-Jewish person. And let's say they were tempted to steal, um, and so the Gentile, they didn't have the law, they didn't have the Ten Commandments. And yet their conscience, you know that inner voice, that kind of gut feeling, their conscience kind of says to them, no, it's not right to steal. And so acting on that basis, they withhold from stealing uh, and don't follow through on that temptation. So that's the 
the Gentile. The Jewish person, on the other hand, they have God's law clearly commanding, commanding them, thou shalt not steal. So they have this position of privilege. For them, it goes beyond a gut instinct. Uh, for them, they have the clear, revealed command of God. But what if they have that, but they choose to ignore it and steal anyway? And you ask the question, which one is going to be better off on the day of judgment? Now, surely it's the Gentile. Because even though they didn't have the law, they kept the requirements of the law just, just by conscience, by instinct. But the Jew, having the law and then choosing to break it, to, to disobey it, that makes them more culpable. That doesn't give them an exemption. That gives them no excuse. Um, circumcision has the same sort of character. You see, Jewish people were set apart as God's people. Uh, way back, even before the time of Moses, way back to the time of Abraham, 2,000 years before Jesus. Uh, and circumcision was like an external mark uh, that the Jewish men, basically, uh, I won't go into detail, but the, the end of their penis just was snipped, snipped off of some of the skin, and that kind of marked them out as one of God's people. Um, but what Paul says is that external mark, that's not the key. That's not, it, it's actually the heart that's the bigger issue. All along, the external mark of circumcision was meant to be pointing to an inner reality of a soft, uh, a soft heart towards God, a receptive heart towards God. Um, the outward symbol without the inner reality counts for nothing. Now, you could make the same point about growing up in a Christian home. Uh, and it's that whole point of privilege but not exemption. Um, when I asked um, amongst those who did the survey this week, I asked, are you a Christian now? Three answers, yes, no, and kinder. Uh, and... Almost everyone who filled out the survey was saying, yes, I'm a Christian. Some said kinder, and I guess some might be still investigating, still checking it out, and that's fantastic. Uh, we love people coming to ex you know, examine the claims of Jesus, to think about it. Um, so most of the people who did the survey were Christian. Have a look at this. Did you grow up in a Christian family? Um, and at least two-thirds said yes. And I just want to point out, it is a great privilege growing up in a Christian home. Uh, you grow up hearing God's word. You grow up experiencing the love, the acceptance of God's people. Um, humanly speaking, growing up in a Christian family makes an enormous difference. And so it's no wonder that so many who grow up in a Christian family go on to embrace that faith that their parents passed on to them. But if you grow up in a Christian family and then choose to completely ignore God, when you stand before God on the judgment, uh, God's not going to say, well, you get special exemption because of your parents. Uh, no, privilege does not mean exemption or excuse. And so that brings me on to the second reality check, and that is we're all in this together. Uh, and I won't break into song at this time because it's not 
kind of one of those joyful themes. Um, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Are there any special exemptions out there? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All of us have a sin problem, no exemptions. So verse 19, he kind of wraps up uh, this argument that he's, has been going for a couple of chapters. He says, verse nine, chapter 3, verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable before God. So picture that day when each one of us stands before God. You know, you know as you go through life, so often we throw up excuses like, um, well, it wasn't really my fault. You know, they kind of made me do it. Uh, or excuses like, yeah, but um, I'm just too busy now. I don't really have time for God in my life at the moment. Or, um, you know, I feel like I'm okay as I am. I don't really feel like I need Jesus. Or I grew up going to church. You know, I got baptised. Or I, I'm a Jewish person. I got circumcised. On that day, when we stand before God, all those excuses will be kind of stripped away. There'll be no buts, no excuses. Every mouth will be silenced because we will know on that day that God's judgment against us is right. And whatever excuses we got away with in this life, they won't, they won't cut it on that day. Now you might be sitting there in your lounge rooms Feeling like, wow, this is, this is heavy. This is such bad news. Why does Paul want to focus so much on the bad news? I don't know if you've any, any of you have seen this movie that's come out recently called The Farewell. Um, I'm planning to watch it this week, so I haven't watched it yet. But it's about a Chinese family and the grandmother... Nene, I think they call her, she has terminal cancer. So she only has a few months to live. And so the family kind of wrestles with this decision. Do we break the bad news to her or do we just keep her in ignorance? Is there any point telling her that she's about to die? Why not just let her kind of enjoy the last few months without having to worry about death? Uh, and... Yeah, so it sets up that moral dilemma, but it, it raises the idea when you've got bad news, what's the loving thing to do? You've got bad news. Is it loving to actually tell someone uh, or are we better off just holding it back? Is it more loving to keep people kind of in the dark, to keep people ignorant? Uh, and some people would say about God's judgment, yeah, it's bad news. We're better off just not talking about it. We're better off not focusing on it. We focus on all the good things, 
but don't focus on the negatives. But I reckon there's a huge difference between you know, the, the setup of the farewell and God's judgment. See, with Nainai, there is no solution. You know, with that grandmother in China, no solution. There's no magical cure for her cancer. But for us, there is a solution. And so it's important to be able to grasp the problem because then it points us towards the beauty, the wonder of the good news of Jesus. And that's what Paul has been building towards all along. All have sinned. This is chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely through the shedding of Jesus' blood. Such good news. So 250 years ago, uh, a man was caught in a fierce storm on a barren hillside uh, and just felt like there was nowhere to hide, nowhere to shield himself from this bitter storm that was raging around him. Um, but then he discovered uh, a rock and it, was kind of, it looked like it had, had been split in two and he found that he could sort of snuggle into the cleft in the rock, you know, where the rock had been split. And he hid there and found shelter until the storm passed over. And that experience reminded him of the judgment day in the future, a day when it feels like there's no refuge, uh, where there's no excuses. Uh, and yet on that day, we can find refuge in the Lord Jesus. Now, that man was named Augustus Montague Top Lady, and he wrote this song, Rock of Ages. And we're going to sing this song in a little while, but I just want to talk it through and just listen to how profoundly, how beautifully he captures the themes of Romans chapters 1 to 3. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Hide me now, my refuge be. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed be for sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. See, he's saying Jesus is my only refuge on that last day. His death in my place. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All of those things for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin to you I cry. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, when I soar through realms unknown, bow before the judgment throne, hide me then, my refuge be, rock of ages cleft for me. Such beautiful words, aren't they? And so it's no wonder that 250 years later, here this morning, we're going to sing that song because he'd caught on to the problem, the, the need on the day of judgment to have a refuge, to have a safe place. But he'd also caught on to the solution uh, that it is Jesus himself. He is our only refuge. Nothing in our hands 
can we bring on that day? But simply to the cross of Jesus we cling. Uh, and as I say, we're going to sing that in a moment. But I just want to, I want to come back to where we began. Because I want to point out that these realities that we've been wrestling with today and the things we're coming on to in, in the weeks ahead, the good news of Jesus saves us, but it also transforms us. Uh, see, how can you be arrogant once you realise I'm just as much to blame as anyone else? Uh, it ought to make us humble. How can you be condescending if you know this is a problem we all share? It ought to drive us to empathy and compassion. What God wants to do is to transform us and our community by the gospel to drive out arrogance, hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and, and to produce genuine, humble, accepting, empathetic love for one another. And that's the trajectory of the book of Romans. Keep listening uh, because it will keep on helping us to see the transforming power, the saving power of the gospel, but it's power to transform us as well. And one of the, just in closing, one of the things I love about our church is we have this huge range of people from every walk of life. Um, we have in our church the former Commonwealth Ombudsman. Right? He is the guy that used to hold the federal government to account. We have the former CEO of Macca's, uh, of McDonald's, uh, former CEO of Optus. Uh, these are men who could gain access to the most exclusive clubs in Australia. And yet they come along to church. They don't demand special treatment. They don't demand to be treated differently. They come along as brothers and sisters with us, uh, they come along recognising we're all in this together. We're all sinners who have been saved by the glorious good news of Jesus and we're all working at being transformed by that good news to be a genuine, loving community of God's people. I'm going to pray now uh, and you're very welcome to join me on Zoom straight after church. Uh, there's a little email that's gone around. And I'd love to uh, wrestle with any questions you have. Uh, but also, I'm just going to talk through some more of these sort of implications uh, with my wife, Ruth, and Jenny Milligan. Uh, we'll have a bit of a chat about that, and you can ask some questions. Let me lead us in prayer. And you might echo the words in your own heart as I pray. Dear God, our Father, I'm sorry for the way I have ignored you and disobeyed you. Sorry for the excuses that so often I've made up. Sorry for the way I've blamed others instead of owning my own fault and my own sin. Father, I, I know that I deserve your judgment. But Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to die for me. Thank you that he is the only refuge from your judgment, that he is a safe place where we can be shielded uh, by that day to come. So please forgive me. Please help me to trust Jesus, to recognize him as my saviour,
to embrace him as my king. And please transform me. Please transform all of us. Take away arrogance. Take away pride and that condescending, judgmental attitude. And please produce in us humility, empathy, and genuine love. Uh, And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.